Stockholm Syndrome. It is where the captive fall in love with their captors. And it seems that the world is being held captive and we are all falling in love. Also on today's episode, we talk about the normalization, the normalization of quote unquote sex education. And we cover a terrifyingly horrific story of state sanctioned pedophilia. With that normalization, we discuss the normalization of psychedelic drugs, a demonic experiences, and, you know, who doesn't want to go to hell? Well, apparently, it's all the rage. And finally, finally, we hit on one wisdom piece that if you apply it, it will for sure change your life, especially in the face of fanatic cancel culture. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose pursue the truth and own the future episode 244 july 28th 2021 that's when i'm recording it uh the afternoon in the very hot and very humid middle east down by the coast where the humidity is soaring it's great for the skin but uh i gotta tell you i would much rather be um locked away in a mountain cabin somewhere surrounded by pine trees that is, that is my dream, um, even if I was being held captive. And in many ways, lots of people across the globe right now, we are being held captive. And are we falling in love with our captors? Well, the Stockholm Syndrome, if you have not heard about it, came from a story all the way back in August 23rd, 1973, where an attempted bank robbery went wrong in Stockholm. Four hostages were taken and the drama ended after five days when the robbers were finally gassed out with some tear gas. But what was surprising was that the captives fell in love with their captors and it then birthed what's called the Stockholm Syndrome where when people are in controlling, manipulative, abusive relationships or are actually being held captive, they begin to fall in love with their captors and they begin to see that those powerful people holding those AK-47s being holed up in a bank, they actually become their protectors rather than the person that's putting their life in danger. Well, across the globe, especially when we look at the global South, people's lives and not just their livelihood, but their lives are being put in danger. And we, I don't want to cover this too much. We've, we've been talking about this for such a long time. I'm growing tired of it, but there are some important things in this short beginning segment that I definitely want to hit. Well, Graham Brady, Sir Graham Brady, who is a UK member of parliament and the chair of the Tory 1922 committee, which is a parliamentary group of the conservative party in the UK. He came out with this uh, blazing article on the Daily Mail on Tuesday, July 27th. And he, he introduces the Stockholm syndrome, and then he frames it in a way that he thinks that people across the globe are being held captive by not COVID, but by government decisions from COVID. And because of that, we are beginning to fall in love with being captive. We're beginning to fall in love with having our, our lives chained up. It's quite convenient, actually, if you think about it, because then you have all these excuses of why you can't do. You become 
rather than an agent of, of change in your life, where the responsibility starts, ends, falls on you, we are then just subject to the powers that be, the captors that are making sure we're all staying safe. And when we begin down that path, Sir Graham describes, when we begin down that path, we begin to fall in love with the, with the government control. And we begin to cede more and more power over. And he says, he says, quote, the line between coercion and care becomes blurry. And the hostage starts to see the man with the AK-47 that holds him in the cell, not as a jailer, but a protector. Well, this clip that I'm about to play from Sir Graham Brady um, is a little old. I think it's from February where he was on a, a talk radio show. But this is the, the sort of uh, non-logical captivity, um, double talk captivity that the world, especially, and I know there are many places, especially when you look at America, it's pretty much back to normal. So if you're in America and you're like, what, what, is, what do you mean? Everything's fine and dandy here across the globe especially in the global south, it is not as such. And people are paying a price, and the price that they are paying is their lives. Here is Sir Graham Brady. Examples that you know, I, I give, it, it is frankly bizarre that if you've been out for a walk on your own in the morning, not seeing anybody, uh, it's illegal to go out and have a walk in the afternoon. Um, this is something that obviously does no harm to anybody, but it is a criminal offence uh, under these laws. Uh, similarly, uh, you can't go and sit on a riverbank alone with a fishing rod, um, even if you're a quarter of a mile from the nearest person. That is a criminal offence under these arrangements. And something I raised right way back in April because it was a, an obvious local issue for me with a, uh, what has been a thriving local market in Altrincham uh, is that uh, it, it's possible to go to Tesco's and buy a bunch of flowers, mm. but you can't go to the outdoor market and buy a bunch of flowers from the flower stall, uh, which has been required to yeah. close down, even though that is obviously a safer environment than Indeed. an indoor. Indeed. It's like one of these things is not like the other. We, it's this double talk, this, these double standards of there are things that are perfectly safe to do. But those are being shut down, whereas going to a crowded supermarket, yeah, that's fine. Why, why, this, why this double think? Why the, it's really totalitarian. Why these totalitarian laws? Now, totalitarian and totalitarianism, it's where r rules and laws become so arbitrary. They're, they're implied in some areas and not in others. And he goes on in this article and he writes, he says, we could walk across the golf course with a friend. So long as no funny business like playing golf was involved. So in the UK, you could go on a, for a walk on the golf course, but you couldn't play golf. Makes no sense. He asked the Minister of Health of Commons in the Commons how she could justify banning healthy activities such as golf, tennis, or bowls. She actually replied that while those activities were indeed safe, if we, quote, let people do those things, they might think that they can do other things too, end quote. Here's the, the health minister 
in the UK saying, yeah, well, you know, all those things are safe, but we don't want people getting any funny ideas. We want to control their lives. He goes on to say that the WHO, the World Health Organization, until very recently, and the public health authority in the UK, were saying that there was very little evidence in favor of wearing masks. And yet, there's mask mandates in the UK. Why? Well, he's right. Many politicians and advisors will admit privately that the policy change of compelling people to wear masks was not really about the spread of infection at all, but about the psychological effect that it would have. The real purpose is social control, to provide a constant reminder to remain distanced from other people, to maintain a state of anxiety that leaves people more likely to apply, comply with the restrictions that might otherwise be resisted or forgotten. In other words, these, the mass mandates, at least in the UK, they're put in place, and obviously a mask is going to work the same anywhere in the world, but they're put in place to drive fear and anxiety and to act as a social reminder, a, a physical reminder that you need to distance yourself. You need to be afraid from everyone else. Just like as we covered in the previous episode, 243, where the in Australia, they're saying, do not do not talk to people in the supermarket. Assume that everyone has the virus. Be afraid of everyone. Note that every hug that you might give could be your death warrant. Or you could end up killing someone else. So don't hug people. Don't touch people. Don't talk to people. People are the vector of this disease and you could, you could die. He goes on to write, almost nobody is asking the serious question about whether face masks are actually effective in stopping the spread of COVID. And this is all the, the psychological warfare and conditioning of really Stockholm Syndrome because we begin to embrace it. We begin to feel safe. We begin to, we begin to slowly agree step by step by step where we say, yes, you're right. This is going to keep me safe. It's going to keep my family safe. It's going to keep society safe. But the truth is, by and large, there's very little that we can do in our lives to keep ourselves safe. And if we are living just to be safe, then we're not living at all. Because there comes some point in our lives and each and every one of us will pass on to the other side. And the, <laughs> the cost-benefit ratio and is the cure worse than the disease? Well, we discussed this a lot in the previous episode, but we have a couple more uh, hot takes, hot stats uh, in this episode that I want to hit very briefly. The Philippines, what's the, what's the cost? What's the cost that we are paying and who is paying it? Well, in the Philippines, children have been technically banned from exiting their doorway from the ages of one for, for the length of a year and four months up to this point. They've been, technically, it's illegal in the Philippines for a minor under the age of 18 to leave their doorway. As soon as the ban was lifted earlier this month, it was reintroduced again, courtesy of the quote-unquote Delta, the Delta variant, ding, 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 uh, as the virus was rebranded, right? 
This was observed for the first two months when they, when they locked down the Philippines back in March of 2020. It was observed for about two months, but then by and large, people said, nah, we're not going to do this. We're going to let our kids go outside and praise God they did. But still, I'm sure there were some people who are still abiding by that. Can you imagine a year and four months where your kids are not allowed to leave your house? It, especially when the demographic of children, they're not getting sick. Rarely, it's really not affecting that age group. Now, the, their justification was, well, we're living in multifamily homes and these kids could bring it back to their grandparents who are at high risk. Still, what is the psychological effect that uh, this generation is going to have, this, of, of young people, of not able, not being able to leave their home, not being able to socialize, not being able to sit down with friends and laugh and run and play? What, what is the, not only the psychological, mental load and impact that will have, which we discussed, uh, what isolation does to the mind, we discussed that at length in the previous episode, but what what is it going to do to their health and excess deaths because of that? Well, speaking of excess deaths in India, a report came out on India's excess death uh, or excess mortality. This was published also in July 27th uh, by the Center for Global Development. The reporters, the, the report authors estimated a total excess death in India over the past 15 months at a staggering 4.9 million. 15 months, excess deaths, 4.9 million. They said that the increased death rate proves that COVID mortality was higher by several orders of magnitude than the 420,000 COVID deaths currently registered in India. This is what their, their argument is. They didn't the report didn't explicitly, the authors didn't explicitly interpret the data, but other people are arguing that this is proof that more than 400,000 people died from COVID by a, an order of magnitude. But <laughs> indications point to the fact that these deaths, these excess mortalities are not merely from COVID, but the lockdown measures that were taken in attempt to stop the spread of COVID. Now, they, one of the most locked down countries in the world has been Peru, and the lockdown certainly does not seem to have helped the spread of coronavirus there. But in India, they, they said, this article says that when the government imposed lockdowns last spring, 10 million, 10 million migrant workers in Indian cities, many of them who had lived mouth to hand, hand to mouth, from their daily labor were thrown out of work. They were forced to return to their home villages, sometimes thousands of miles away, walking thousands of miles away, while starving as their work had evaporated, with it any livelihood to sustain them and their families. Now, obviously, maybe they didn't all walk. They took buses, but they were forced to return. Millions of workers were forced to return to their villages thousands of miles away. GDP in India fell by a record 7.3% in the year to March 31st, and research conducted with 75 households 
in the Pradesh state showed that many household incomes had slumped by an average of 75% over the last year. A 75% cut in income. And we know that as your income rises, your length of life expectancy rises. And the converse is true. As your income falls, your, your expected length of life is going to fall. Well, the article, this article goes on to write, in the early months of the pandemic, India restricted cl- access to clinics even for direly ill patients. This policy left hundreds of thousands of tuberculosis, HIV, cancer, malaria, diabetes patients, and countless others without any needed, the needed medical attention. By one account, mistreatments for tuberculosis alone in the early lockdown days killed an additional 400,000 people to tuberculosis. 400,000 from TB. A a completely preventable disease, but because people weren't able to get to clinics, they died instead. What is the cost? The cost that the global south is paying. It's in the millions, the number of millions of lives. In New Zealand, even, uh, news organization WION, World is One News, reported that nearly 18,000 children in New Zealand were being pushed into poverty from the pandemic. 18,000 kids are now living in poverty that weren't before which means their diet is worth their, their worse their education that they're probably getting or able to get is probably declining it just just because of the their nutrition that they're having these have real world consequences the decisions that we're making and the question that we need to ask is are we experiencing stockholm syndrome are we endearing ourselves to these, these policies that keep us captive. And if we are, what can we do? What should we do to push back and say, no, we need to protect these, <laughs> these minorities, these segments of society that are going to suffer. And it's not just minorities, it's majorities, but these segments of society that are truly suffering under these, these global lockdowns across, across the world, across the global south. Well, it's not all bad news today. Uh, the UAE had a big win. United Arab Emirates had a massive win against human trafficking. I hate human trafficking. It is despicable. It's ugly. Well, the, in Abu Dhabi, the UAE government coordinated with Interpol, with uh, Operation Libertera, which led to the detention of 286 people. Hand clap to Interpol and UAE. Uh, the article in the National UAE Times uh, wrote that the Operation Room in Abu Dhabi and the UAE personally took the campaign against migrant smuggling and trafficking gangs that led to these arrests. Interpol said that it rescued about 430 human trafficking victims and identified nearly 4,000 irregular migrants from 74 countries. Many of them required medical, psychological, and housing assistance, 
uh, as they were taken into protective services. Now, these arrests and, and, and strikes happened all across the globe, and the operation was run out of Abu Dhabi, including uh, Algeria, Colombia. Uh, Spain was looking for a couple, a couple guys that they caught. Uh, Ecuador arrested eight suspects from this operation. Ghana intercepted two Nigerian suspects that were running a human trafficking ring between Ghana, Togo, Benin, and Nigeria. Uh, six members of a gang were arrested in northern Macedonia uh, who were smuggling migrants from Afghanistan, B Bangladesh, Pakistan, Syria uh, into Greece. Uh, and in the Sudan, they rescued 253 victims of human trafficking and arrested 32 suspects. Why, why does this matter? Why are we bringing it up? Well, human trafficking is has been around for thousands of years under a different name slavery the slave trade the slave trade is alive and well today and the pornography industry and the sex industry heavily relies i guess it's a it's a uh, <laughs> a relationship that they have between one another um codependent relationship between the human trafficking and the connection of pornography and the sex industry. As many who are in the sex industry enter even as, as young as 11, 12, 13 years old, one in five that are trafficked are boys, and they're sold as sex slaves around the world, and it is a massive, massive multi-trillion dollar industry. And it's really fueled that the, pathway into this industry is fueled by sexual deviance and the ubiquity, the widespread access of online porn. Now, porn, it starts off uh, very, I wouldn't say innocent, but it starts off normally. People's porn addictions, which lead to these dark places, normally start off with something like softcore porn. And then it slowly evolves to more hardcore, to then uh, watching stuff that involves violence until it, a person reaches the point that they need to physically act out in order to get the same sort of dopamine hit that the porn used to provide them in their early days. And so there are many stories where people started off with, as, a, as a young kid or in their teen years seeing something that was more softcore in nature. And as their addiction grew over the years, it led to darker and darker, pla darker places in the online world, which then overflowed into the real world where they're, they're caught up in an addictive uh, prostitution rings where they're, where they're buying prostitutes and it gets darker and darker as it goes on. Now, we're seeing a push for all of this to become normative, whether it's from sex work, whether it's from uh, online porn, lots of people are actually advocating, and this is coming from the, the progressive LGBTQ uh, sexual liberation movement, sex education movement that we're seeing across the globe being pushed. It is being pushed by globalists, and it's a new form of imperialism where they're pushing the sex education into 
not just Western schools and countries, but into developing countries. And within that, they are wanting to package porn education, you know, how to responsibly watch pornography. Because they're saying, well, their kids are going to do it anyways these days, so let's normalize it. Let's let's uh, regulate it. Let's make sure that kids are doing this responsibly. And what it's doing is it's it's tearing out the the moral fabric of society to the place that we have no plumb line, we have no breaks, we have no we have no semblance of what is right or wrong beyond all the left can really offer all this progressive movement where where God is dead, all that they can offer is consent. That is the only that is the only plumb line. That is the only thing that they can hold onto to make something moral or immoral, because there is no morality in Marxism, in this this progressive ideology where they say there is no right and wrong. Those are just social constructs. There is no. Uh, uh, good or bad, moral or immoral, those are all social constructs. In that world, the only thing that they can hang on to is consent. Is there consent between two people? And how do we determine that? Well, we're going to have to sign documents beforehand to make sure that it's consented. And then even then, well, if the person is slightly underneath the influence when they sign that document, well, is that really consent? When that is all that sex boils down to, and that is the push of normalization of our sexuality, things become deeply, deeply broken, and which leads us to this next segment. It is, oh, I saw this, I saw this, and I was just shocked, uh, just blown away that that this is really the world that we live in. It is, it is so dark, the world that we are in. There are, to, the, to think that humanity as a whole is basically good and everyone's just, you know, basically, you know, well, has good intentions, I think is just absurd. It's an absurd thought. Uh, warning for this next segment, if, if you have kids around you listening to this, I would recommend uh, you either pause this or send them out of the room. Here is uh, this shocking story that uh, came out a number about a year ago, really, this this interview by RT, uh, Russian Times came out, and uh, yeah, here's here's clip one. Put your seatbelt on. In 2008, Dr. Helmut Kentler died in Germany, aged 80. His obituaries described the well-known psychologist and sexologist as an advocate for permissive sexual morality and humanitarian sex education. In Germany, Kentler was lauded as a hero of the sexual revolution in the 1970s and 80s, who had devoted a great deal of energy to emancipating the German people. He wrote numerous books and appeared on many TV shows as an expert. He proved his theories by setting an example. As a gay man, he adopted and raised children. So by European standards of the time, Kentler could be seen as a progressive and positive individual. Aha, progressive and positive individual. Here is someone who is promoting sex education, who's promoting sexual liberation, who's promoting, you know, let's, let's free people. Let's have people have healthy, a healthy sexual experience. And I'm going to set a good example as a, 
as a homosexual father who is, who is adopting children to, just to show that this is normal, just to show to the world that this is healthy, that this is something that should be celebrated. And right now it is. It's not just something that people are, are in, an act that people are engaging in, but it is being celebrated by progressive culture is saying this is normative, this is normal. And what else do you have? Why, why shouldn't there? If, if, if God is dead and we are just evolutionary sacks of chemicals that evolved out of the marsupial swamps from billions and billions of years ago, then what is left? Where is the moral plumb line? If there is no morality, then yes. Of course, this is where it leads. But uh, Helmut uh, didn't stop there. German investigators found archived documents showing that Dr. Kentler had approached the West Berlin Senate to propose a social experiment. His suggestion was to allow men who were sexually attracted to minors to adopt neglected street boys. So he was a, a psychologist. And he approached the German government to say, hey, I got this really great idea. We're in the midst of this sexual revolution where people are finally free to express themselves as they really are. Hey, why don't we set up this experiment to really help normalize society? And we can put street kids who have no other place to go into foster homes that are run by men who have attraction, who have known attraction, pedophilic attraction to kids and minors. And this is really going to help normalize them into society. This is what he was proposing. Kentler was allowed to conduct his experiment in 1969 when he worked at the Berlin Pedagogical Center. Pause. The government sanctioned this. This wasn't just a, a rogue actor. This is not just, ah, oh, this is just someone on the fringes. This really isn't built into this, this LGBTQ plus A double A movement. This isn't part of the, really part of the, the gay or the trans or the LGBT agenda. When actually this, this is in the very foundations of this, the foundations of this, the sexual revolution that was happening in the sixties, this this idea that if a child is consenting, then it's good. Because, hey, if the kid likes it, that's, that's sexual liberation for them, and that is what we're after. His hypothesis was that a sexual relationship with older men would help the boys to be socialized. He thought that a sexual relationship with older men would help them be socialized. Full-on pro pedophilia and supported by the government. This is the normalization. And this is back in the 60s. And these, and these homes ran all the way up to the, to the early 2000s that were, the government knew that these programs were existing. And this is what we're seeing in Western progressive society. This is the push that we are still seeing today on, on multiple fronts and multiple levels. 1980s, Kentler reported to the Berlin Senate that his experiment had been a success. Describing the lives of three foster families, 
the sexologist claimed that all the boys had become good citizens, able to support themselves, and that they had retained their heterosexual orientation. In his report, Kentler wrote, it was clear to me that the three men had done so much for their boys primarily because they had engaged in sexual relationships with them. It, it, it's not just, oh, this program worked and, uh, you know, homosexuals are able to raise kids and be healthy. It's not just that. It was, it worked because these men engaged in sexual relationships with children. Well, RT did this amazing job interviewing two now men who were, who were boys in the foster care system that were put in homes that were run by Kentler. And they, I didn't pull the clips because they're, they're, they're speaking in German and being translated, but they, they have these, these interviews with these two gentlemen, their faces are blurred and their voices are changed, where they're describing what life really was like inside of these foster homes. Well, they were, they were placed in isolated rooms when they, when they had more than one foster child in the house, isolated rooms. They weren't allowed to go outside. They were quote unquote homeschooled and indoctrinated. The, the, these foster men would turn one boy against another and then manipulate them into performing acts with them that they did not want to do. And if they refused or didn't want to, they described their experiences of getting beat and or being forced, quote unquote, forced to eat garbage out of the trash can for dinner as their punishment. Abuse. And, and these boys, they didn't know better. They didn't know different. There's no, there's no talking to the outside world, no follow-ups. The only people, person that was engaging with the foster pedophiles uh, was Helmut Kentler, who was operating underneath the, the, the sanction and the cover of the German government. For years, years of abuse, it wasn't until they were 21 and outside of these homes and into the real world that they began to see that, oh, this was not normal. This was not okay. And yet, Kentler suggested that even adults who were now out of the foster care system, they, they should continue to live with their abuser. They should continue to live with their captor. Because this is the place that they can remain safe. This is demented. It is twisted. It is sick. It is sick. Kentler's network of influence encompassed academic facilities and social welfare services. It wasn't just Kentler. He was mean. He was able to gain his influence by having influence in the medical field, and in government. And, and he was being backed by that. In the, in the article, in this, this interview, or uh, investigative series, they say that there was at least 50 intellectuals behind Kentler helping him run these abusive experiments. And it wasn't just tolerated, but it was supported for decades. And some of the people who were responsible for this as of last year, 2020, were still in power and their names were being protected under, under the guise of data protection 
and under the quote-unquote statutes of limitation. Well, this happened so long ago, we can't prosecute for this now. But he was not a rogue scientist, a rogue social psychologist, but this was part of an organized, systematic abuse that was happening to children. Uh, there was an article by Rod Dreyer, and he wrote, speaking about this, this particular story, he wrote, when the Berlin Senate commissioned uh, him, which would be Kentler, commissioned Kentler to prepare an export report on the subject of, quote-unquote, homosexuals as caregivers and educators. In 1988, he explained that there is no need to worry that children would be harmed by sexual contact with caregivers as long as the interaction was not forced. The consequence can be, quote, very positive, especially when the sexual relationship can be characterized as mutual love, unquote. You know, with, within this, this gay agenda and this LGBTQ movement, and it is not just a movement to, uh, of some people wanting to live the way that they want, it is a movement to reform and reshape the moral, moral bearings of society to destroy any semblance of, of morality when it comes to sexuality and when it comes to the normative family. There have been arguments that have been made that, ha that are saying that all of this is leading towards the normalizing of pedophilia. Because if quote-unquote love is love, well then of course, if, if a 50-year-old man loves an eight-year-old boy, and the eight-year-old boy loves that 50-year-old man, and it's consensual, well, it's mutual, it's mutual love, and it's very positive. This is, this is what is happening in the arguments. Now, those, the argument that I've heard on the other side from uh, LGBTQ advocates would say, well, no, 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 of course not. Their children, they can't consent. You know, that is not where this is going. This is not what we want. It would never go there. And yet it has gone there. It has gone there. Dreyer wrote that among the freedoms that the sexual revolution of 1986 sought to fight for, this was an all-out, one of all-out sexual freedom. One which no longer conceded any norms. And part of this revolution in 68 was that pedophilia was then also diagnosed as allowed and appropriate. Allowed and appropriate. With the death of God comes the death of any sort of moral bearing. And so where are the breaks of this? Is, it okay? is this okay because, well, it's consensual? No. Is it okay because the state sanctioned it and that society is normalizing it? And if, if this is what everyone wants, then it's okay? No. But is there, is there any break on this train to stop this movement? No. And the reason why, the reason why the entire thing must be opposed. The entire rewriting of normative family and sexuality needs to be 
vehemently opposed is because there are no logical or, or moral breaks or safeguards on this progressive train. Because the presuppositions that have been adopted is follow your heart, whatever you feel you are, and that is good, and anything that would resist you in that is bigoted. Anything that would resist you in your how you really feel, well, that is, that is hate. And we are a movement of tolerance and love. And so if, if a, a minor wants to do whatever he or she or it or they want, well, they should be allowed to because we need to let them experience their, their sexual liberation. Otherwise, they're, going, they're going to be so uh, oppressed later on in life and it, the consequences will be horrible. So throw off these social constructs of sexuality and liberate yourself and, and transcend these, these, these constructs of, uh, of colonialism and civilization. Transcend. Yeah. Well, 30, 40, 50 years ago, Rod writes, one of the most respected psychological authorities in Germany he was placing foster children with pedophiles with the knowledge of the German parliament. And today, the same thing is happening, where top doctors and hospitals and medical schools are cutting off healthy breasts of young females and jacking children up with cross-sex hormones, all in a grand experiment to liberate them from their biology. This is the, the reality of the trans movement. And it is not just in the West. It is not just in, in, in America. It is a progressive ideology that through media is beginning to be normalized everywhere in the world. It is being pushed and normalized. And it has been accelerated by everything that's happened with, with in the last year and a half with the isolation of COVID. It's been accelerated with the, the polarization of movements like BLM. It's been accelerated, not just in the West, but across the globe where, where, where people across nations that before never would have even think to have these conversations are having these polarized conversations for the first time. And it, it is dangerous, but there's, there's a, a bit of good news out of Finland, from the Society of Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. Glad that it's evidence-based. A year ago, the Finland Health Authority derivated from the WPATH, the WPATHs, seven standards of care. Standards of care seven, actually. By issuing new guidelines saying that the psychotherapy, rather than puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, should be the first line of treatment for gender, gender dysphoric youth. This change occurred following a systematic evidence review which found the body of evidence for pediatric transition inclusive. Inconclusive, excuse me. Which, this is what we've been saying, and yet I have, I have other people pushing against me saying that, well, the data is conclusive. Well, at least from... The people in Finland, the government of Finland, they're saying, nope, it's not conclusive. The article goes on to say, although pediatric medical transition is still allowed in Finland, the guidelines urge caution, 
given the unclear nature 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 excuse me given the unclear nature of benefits of these interventions largely reserving puberty blocker and cross sex hormones for minors with early childhood onset gender dysphoria and no concurring medical health conditions cuz a lot of these kids who are experiencing gender dysphoria have other comorbidities other health conditions whether it's ADHD or depression or suicidal tendencies so what are the standards of the WPATH well it allows for hormones and surgeries to be offered to youth with pubertal onset of gender dysphoria which is frequently complicated frequently complicated by medical health problems and, com- and neurocognitive comorbidities such as ADHD and autism spectrum disorders following only a cursory assessment by medical health professions these can be bypassed altogether according to the quote unquote informed consent model of care endorsed by the W PATH7 which means you just need a, a cursory assessment and even with that a medical health profession can bypass that altogether and you can go straight on your minor can go straight on to you know uh, a, a top surgery and hormones which have irreversible irreversible consequences the finnish guideline warns of these irreversible consequences for those under the age of 25 due to lack of neurological maturity the guideline also raises the concern that puberty blockers may negatively impact the brain maturity and impair the young person's ability to provide informed consent to the subsequent and more irreversible irreversible parts of the dutch protocol sex cross sex hormones and surgeries The Finnish guidelines reflect reflect the growing international concern about the unexplained sharp rise in adolescents presenting with gender dysphoria which is occurring in increasingly complex developmental and mental health contexts often without a childhood history of gender related distress this is what we're talking about this is what we have been talking about why is there this boom Well they did a study and compared kids who went on the the puberty blocking hormones and the cross sex hormones and a control group that didn't and after the 18 month study it showed that there is no significant difference in the mental state of these kids from the ones who took the hormones and didn't take the hormones which which says it doesn't seem as if these hormone therapies are the way to go well hand clap to finland to the finnish health authority for actually following some evidence for actually um putting the brakes on this thing because what what are the consequences that we are going to see what are the lawsuits that we are going to see of in the next 20 years of these kids turning around and suing their parents and the governments and the doctors and I hope they do but more so I hope that we can put a an end to this craziness craziness
Yeah, that makes sense. Well, in a post-truth society where we have exchanged the truth for lies and reason for post-modern irrationality like we've just been talking about, the absurd finally makes sense. Well, today we are talking about uh, DMT, a psychological substance that occur naturally occurring in plants that causes you to have uh, psychedelic hallucinations uh, via the uh, shaman practice of ayahuasca. Here is uh, <laughs> Megan Fox, the actress, bragging uh, and just praising her terrifying experience with ayahuasca. So we went to we went to Costa Rica to do ayahuasca like in a proper setting, like with indigenous people, and and the entire thing starts with something called vomitivo. I hope I'm allowed to divulge this, that it's okay that I share, but oh. I'm encouraging it. Um, so you go, and we were with 20 other strangers, and you all line up at, like, the, the edge of the rainforest over this weird fence, and you go three by three, and you drink lemongrass tea until you, like, by n- not your own volition, just vomit everything out of your body. But that gets you ready to then go into the ceremony that night because you're like, I, my vanity is gone. I've just done this in front of all of these strangers and like now I'm ready to like really open up any any spiritual experience that needs to start with your complete humiliation and degradation uh it's probably going to be a a demonic experience anytime that there is humiliation you know, you know, the demonic realm in the demonic realm is shaitan they hate they they these spirits they hate and they loathe human beings, absolutely despise us. And so often they want to humiliate a person because that humiliation opens them up. As she said, it opens you up and it opens you up to these feelings of vulnerability and shame. And it triggers probably a lot of deep-seated emotions that they then can find open doors into your soul. But here she goes on. She goes on to glorify this uh, demonic encounter and episode that she has. So we did it for three nights. It was incredibly intense. I went to, everybody's journey is different. The second night I went to, to hell for eternity. Um, if, you're going, if you're going to hell for eternity, uh, mm, first, her description of it doesn't actually sound like hell. And second, I don't think you're going to be laughing and smiling about it. Yeah. And to just knowing eternity is um, like t- torture in itself because there was no beginning, middle, or end. So you have like a real ego death. It's your own psychological hell, basically, is the point of the medicine, right? This is a medicine that goes, it surpasses like anything you could do with talk therapy or like hypnotherapy or any of those things. It just goes straight into your soul and it takes you to the psychological prison that you hold yourself in. So it's, it's your own version of hell. And I was definitely there. This medicine, she says, goes DMT goes straight into your soul. Yeah, that's that's demonic. It is opening your your spirit up, open your soul up to demonic influences. And we have talked about DMT a little bit before here on the show, but it opens it opens you up to encounters in the demonic and in the spirit realm. And here she's talking about being put in her her own state of hell and, and very much uh, romanticizing and making light of hell in and of itself. Now, I've I've actually met a, a gentleman 
it was years ago, probably 12 years ago, I met a gentleman who when he was a young boy, he was swimming and he drowned and he had an encounter where he, he went to hell. And when he described it, there was such a, a fear, like it really put the fear of God in me where he described the endless falling, feeling nauseous as you fall and, and flip and turn for what's truly, it felt to him like eternity, being eaten by maggots and worms, but not being eaten up. And these worms just eating you again and again, being continually burnt by flame, tortured by demons. Uh, other accounts of hell that I've heard, you, you aren't having a party with people. You are isolated and far away. In, essentially in lockdown, you are in solitary confinement, being burned, but not burning up. Tormenting, fear, dark, you can't see. Well, he called upon the name of God and, and was resuscitated uh, when he woke up. And it, it took a number of years for him to understand his encounter. But what he shared was he realized that there was unforgiveness in his heart, that he had held grudges against his father and he had unforgiveness and bitterness against his dad. And he says, that was, that was the reason because I had unforgiveness in my heart that I ended up in hell. And we need to, we need to safeguard ourselves from that, from that bitterness, from that unforgiveness, because it, it will not only destroy our life on this side of time, but it will destroy us for all of eternity. Before we get on to uh, the next next topic, uh, Weaver and Loom's segment, where it transitions nicely, I want to point out that what's happening here as well in the media is a normalization, a normalization of psychedelic drugs, a normalization of demonization, a normalization of hell. Ah, oh, it's just your own personal hell. You know how bad can how bad can it really be to open yourself up to uh, these shaman? Uh, experiences. You know, it's, it's the most healing, therapeutic thing that we could do. Do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. It, it, it leads to dark and paths where you too, you, you fall in love with your captor. It's like a pity, self-hatred. It, it is our captor and we are held captive by it. We are, we are held captive by it, but then it turns around and we, we like that feeling. We like that feeling of pitying ourselves. We like that feeling of self-hatred and we think that it's our friend. We think that re rejection is our friend. We think that these thoughts of self-hatred and, and beating ourselves up are our friend, but they're not. But we develop that Stockholm syndrome, just like those boys being held by, by these pedophiles under state sanction thought that these men were their protectors and were there to help them. Well, before we go to our Weaver and Loom segment, this show is brought to you by listeners like you. This is a value for value podcast. We don't have big advertisers on the show, but it is fueled and funded by thousands uh, just like you, not thousands of people are fueling and funding the show, but thousands each month turn to the show. And the, our purpose, our mission has never been more vital than in this moment where we are seeing the, the, this attack 
against the things that we hold so dear against society, against children, is rising and, and on the climb. So to keep this show going, if you get value out of the show, which I assume you do because you're listening still, if you get value out of it, con t consider giving the value that you're getting out of it back to the show because it enables us to not only continue producing work, but to produce better work. So you can do that by visiting our website at lucasgrobot.com or by giving your, and giving your hard cold fiat there, or by listening to this show on a podcasting 2.0 certified value for value app like Podfriend, Breeze, or Sphinx, or Podstation, where you can stream your one bits and do bits Satoshis as you listen, which that's the way that I like to give back to the independent creators that I listen to. So you might want to consider checking that out and listening to the show in that way today. Don't go away. We will be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destiny. Well, yesterday, uh, a friend and longtime listener of the show reached out and shared how they were in the midst of being canceled on the Twitter. She had, she had shared with a, an individual privately on Twitter her her thoughts about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And she said that she was pro-peace, which means she doesn't think that from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is a good idea, which is a call for genocide. Now, I don't know exactly what the exchange was, but this other lady then thought it would be a heroic virtue signaling idea to take that tweet, screenshot it, the, the private DM screenshot it and tweeted out to all of her followers, which then turned the, the mob, the angry mob turned against her because you know what? Heaven forbid you have a thought that is different. Heaven forbid you go against the status quo. And so she was in the midst of being canceled. And I was uh, recently gone through this a number of, a number of weeks ago uh, where I too was talking about it's a, you know, my, my belief, my stance when it comes to Israel and Palestine being against Hamas, but yet pro-Palestine and pro-Israel for the reconciliation. And a lot of people really, a lot of people really did not like that. And the number of comments and attacks and uh, a number of in real life friends canceling me, uh, it, was, it was painful. It, and, it, and it really does weigh on someone's mind and someone's heart. And as I worked through how to get above, get above the, the comments, to get above the bickering, get above the arguments, to get above the, the explaining and the hurt that I experienced from people canceling, because it is a, it's, it's a hurtful, painful experience. Uh, this was the quote that I continually returned to, that I continually held onto. And it was what really caused me and continues to cause me to be able to overcome and get above it all. Here is the quote. 
It is by the one and only Jesus Christ. He said, love your enemies and pray or bless those who persecute you. Not just love your enemies and tolerate them, but actually ask that God would bless them, that those people who persecute us and attack us and, and say nasty things about us, turn on us, hate us, humiliate us, seek to turn other people against us who are actively, actively seeking to destroy your life and my life. The way that we get above it all is to one, forgive them, and two, ask that God would bless them, abundantly bless them. So it's not just pray, oh, oh Lord, I hope that, I hope that so-and-so just has a miserable life. Don't curse them, but bless them. And it is a, it's a very hard thing to do when you're experiencing pain from an individual. And this, it doesn't matter what, what religion you're from or your, your, your religious background or belief in this. I promise you that if you exercise this, that people who curse you, if you bless them and you practice that on a daily basis, you will, you will find yourself in a place of freedom, especially when it comes to these assaults and these attacks. It's, it's the blessing that is the way to freedom. It is forgiveness that is the way to freedom. Because when we hold bitterness and unforgiveness, we, we do put ourselves in that prison of hell. We are the captors and the captive. And we think that this anger and resentment against people who are doing us wrong, we think that that is our friend because we feel self-justified. We feel vindicated. We feel like our anger is like, yes, I'm angry for the right reasons. And they did wrong me. I am right and they are wrong. Well, it's true, yes. But you are now finding yourself in a prison. It's just like the, the story of a gentleman that I met a number of years ago. He said, it was unforgiveness that put me in hell. And so don't, don't end up in that place for your life personally. And the way to overcome the, the psychological and spiritual attacks when you're being canceled, because when you're being canceled, it's not just, it's not just something that's happening to the natural, even though it is, but with it, I'm nearly certain that people are speaking word curses against you. People are speaking word curses that have, that are like arrows in the spirit realm that are attacking your mind and assaulting you and assailing you. And the way that we can lift up a shield against those things is by forgiving and saying, you know what? I know that they're hexing me. I know that they're cursing me. I know that they're probably using uh, you know, their words as witchcraft against me, but I'm going to walk in the opposite spirit. Instead of overcoming evil with evil, I'm going to overcome evil with good, and I will forgive and forgive and bless and bless. And that makes us overcome. And then the chaos from all that conflict just fades away. It fades away. And we come away from it healthier, stronger, and more whole people that we don't become, we don't, we, we don't become like the things that we hate, like the things that we know is causing us pain. We do not want to become like that. You do not want to become like that. But 
What do we want to do with our communities? How do we want to build up our communities to become uh, something that not only we are proud of, but others can be proud of? Well, that is by sharing this episode with others. You can post it online in your, your, your Twitters or your Instagrams or whatever, but the best way that I like getting stuff and I like sharing stuff is by sending an individual or two a text message saying, hey, check out this episode. It makes me feel loved. And it makes, when someone does that to me, it just makes me feel more connected to them. And then we can have a conversation and actually talk about it. And it's through that defining and, and the laying the bricks of, of reality. That is our job as a leader. And it's through having those conversations with our friends or coworkers or spouses or brother or sister that we are able to build a strong wall, a fortress and gates to allow the right things in and out to not just protect our lives, but to set culture and to have a worldview that is healthy and that blesses other people around us. So thank you for listening to the show. I'm honored that you would spend this hour with me. And I love spending this hour with you. Remember, if you seek truth with all of your heart, you will indeed find it. And it's through that process you find your purpose and you can own your future. <laughs>